Coindesk is calling on visionaries in the digital economy to present at our newest event, Ideas, Investing in Digital Assets and Enterprises Summit. Ideas is the place for you to present your marketing opportunity in front of leading investors poised to help you get your idea off the ground. Apply today to become a presenter at Ideas 2022 by Coindesk. Visit coindesk.com forward slash ideas for more information. This episode is sponsored by Circle and Near. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. If you don't follow Punk6529 on Twitter, you really should. After little more than a year on the site, the account has amassed a following of more than 390,000. It's a trove of insights into the emerging Web3 economy and musings on the principles of open platforms. In that time, 6529 has leveraged that large following, as well as some timely investments in key NFTs, including the piece from the CryptoPunks collection from which their name and avatar is taken, to build something of a venture operation. One outcome of that is OM, a vision for the metaverse that is deliberately open and free from centralized control. Now, even if you're not aware of Punk6529, you've probably guessed that that isn't the actual name of the person behind this operation. It is, quite obviously, a pseudonym. It's this aspect of their life that we want to discuss today with the person behind 6529, whom we are honored to have as a guest. The video will not show their face and the voice will be modulated to prevent any identification of the real life human being. Among the many things that have interested me in the work of 6529 is what being pseudonymous has meant for how they engage with the world. I will say that recently they revealed their identity to me. I didn't try to dig it up. It just uh, was brought to me and it turned out to be someone I've known for some time. But for months before that, I'd been engaging with 6529, reading their posts on Twitter, sharing some DM exchanges, and then ultimately doing a live video interview at Coindesk's Consensus in June. Throughout, I was oblivious to their identity, and to the extent that I tried to imagine who it might be, it turns out I was way off. I raised this detail about my knowledge for two reasons. I think it's an appropriate disclosure for our audience, and because reflecting on the before and after periods around my knowledge of this fact makes for an interesting analysis of how pseudonymity affects how we interact with people. We'll get into that more with the fabulous Punk6529 in a moment. But before that, let's welcome my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So you actually don't know who 6529 is, right? Not. That is correct. Right. So... Between the two of us, we'll have this interesting structure to this conversation. <laughs> you can sit there trying to guess and you won't get anywhere because you won't. Yeah. It, it has. And I'll see when I'll talk to him about this when we bring him on. But it really has yeah. impacted the way I think about what I read of from 6529. I would imagine and, you know, so. And I think what's really interesting yeah. is, right, like when I say I don't know who 6529 is, I mean, I don't know the real world entity of this individual. However, I'm certainly familiar with the content put on Twitter and I know some of the stances and, you know, and things like that, that are certainly what this person has chosen to display through this particular facet of identity on that particular social media platform. So I think it's interesting to say that I would say that I 
have some familiarity with 6529, the avatar, but I do not know the real identity of the person behind that, which of course contains a multitude of facets of other parts of identity that I'm just not bringing into this conversation the way that you are. Right. And given that we've actually had identity itself as a sort of very common topic on this show, it is just an interesting way to approach it. All right. Let's, let's bring in the famed 6529. Do it. There, there they are. It's, it's (laughs) great to see you in your static state again. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. You're most welcome. As you know, I put it out there, the fact that I now know who you are. And it's just, I just find it interesting because now when I read, you know, your, your, your insights are as tremendous as they were. It's not like anything's particularly changed, but it's really quite different for me knowing, oh, that's so-and-so saying this, as opposed to this sort of almost disembodied, you know, we called you the pseudonymous philosopher uh, at, at Consensus Festival. And so I had this sort of image. I don't know that I'm, I'm not disappointed. In fact, it's quite an honor to know, but it's at the same time, it really has changed the dynamic. And I just want to use that as a segue to just, uh, you know, get a conversation going about the power of pseudonymity. There we are on stage at Consensus. Um, so why, right? Why, why did you go down this path of creating this avatar, this, this pseudonym and building this body of work around essentially a new identity? Sure. Let's start there. Let's start why I did it what I thought would happen, what actually happened, and then end up where you started of what does it mean for the few people who I knew before and after, like you. So it's an interesting, super interesting discussion. The first part is the following. So somewhere around late 2020, I got quite intrigued with NFTs. I've been in crypto for quite some time, since 2013. And... I had, of course, noticed NFTs, the first go-around, the CryptoKitties era of NFTs, even the first go-around with punks. And like I think most serious crypto people, more or less ignored it. Like, oh, okay, that's cute. It's a fun game. It's an interesting proof of concept, but this is not the serious stuff, right? This is not what we're here for. And sometime in late 2020, I came back to it and something was bothering me, that there was something that I was missing, that there was something important here. And I have a bunch of friends, uh, colleagues, acquaintances, Twitter friends, who are in aggregate quite knowledgeable about crypto. And I started bugging a bunch of them and saying, you know, let's dig into this. And more or less everyone told me, like, no, this is dumb. We're not interested. This is, I'm not into art. I'm not an art collector. You know, let's talk about DeFi or something. And I really couldn't get any of my closest crypto friends particularly engaged on the topic. So I just started doing something that I haven't done in quite some time, which is dig in myself. And I started by, you know, I believe in learning by doing. So I went and bought, you know, a completely random, very inexpensive NFT and said, oh, okay, how did I feel about that? Oh, that was kind of interesting. And so I don't know what it was, like 10 bucks, 20 bucks. And then I said, oh, that was, I enjoyed that experience. Let's buy a $200 one and then a $2,000 one. And next thing I knew, I was buying hundreds of thousands of dollars per NFT, which I think is a lot of money for anyone. And certainly it's a lot of money for me. Um, and I started having three feelings about NFTs, and this is what actually led to 6529. The first feeling I had was that this is 
cryptocurrencies, crypto assets, consumer moment. And if you think about technologies, they consumerize when you stop talking about the technology and talk about something else. The silly example I use, but I think is correct, is that Instagram uses Python, but no one has ever said to anyone, you should download Instagram. It's such a great application. It uses Python, right? No one's ever said that. No one ever would think that way, right? What you care about is that you're going to post pictures from the beach on your vacation and so are your friends, and that's fun. And whether it uses Python in the background or some other programming language, who cares? And most of what cryptocurrency has been about, I think, in my view, pre-NFTs, has been a lot of technical stuff among fairly technical people speaking to other technical people on, you know, it's decentralized and it's Nakamoto consensus and it's the Byzantine general's problem and it's smart contracts and automated market makers and all these things, which are super interesting to like 2% of the world. The type of people who in the 1990s might have an opinion on if you should use an Oracle database or an IBM database. I'm one of those people, right? Like if it was in the 1990s, I'd probably be, I'd know how many transactions per second these databases do. Now I know how many transactions per second Bitcoin does or Solana or Ethereum. But this is not consumer talk, right? Nobody sits around, no normal person sits around at dinner and be like, oh, look, how many transactions per second Solana did today? I mean, this, no one does this. And if you start talking about these things, you, you're weird and they leave. And so what I noticed was, and I noticed it myself and my friends, and we'd be talking about, oh, you should get the one with the hoodie or maybe the cowboy hat or... Oh, are the wild whites cool? Yeah, they look really cool. And of course, everyone knows that it's Ethereum proof of work providing consensus, and it's a token, and it's a MetaMask, and you can find it on Etherscan, right? It's a pretty sophisticated group of friends, but that wasn't what you were talking about. You just took that for granted. I said, oh, that's super interesting. This is something that I feel is different, and this is from someone who spent an awful lot of time on crypto. And then related to this was an interesting takeaway that actually organizations, companies, or other types of organizations actually have an incentive to engage with NFTs that they didn't really with Bitcoin or Ethereum. You know, I went to, I was at NFT NYC last year, and there was a Dolce Gabbana party. And the interesting part about the Dolce Gabbana party was that there was a Dolce Gabbana party at a crypto conference, right? Like I've never seen Gabbana at a typical crypto conference. And I assume they also don't go to Cisco network administrator conferences, even though they might use Cisco devices to run their network, right? Because why would they? What relevance would they have to a Bitcoin conference? But NFTs can represent anything, and anything can include a digital Dolce Gabbana address, and they have an existing brand equity, and they can monetize it through NFTs. And so there's an interesting business opportunity for them. And the same thing, I think, is going to happen with all fashion companies, lifestyle companies, Consumer packaged goods will put QR codes on a six-pack of Coke. You'll get some type of NFT. They'll know you bought it from Walmart. Sports teams will do it for their fans. Religious groups will do it for their congregants. Universities will do it for their alumni. Maybe some inventive governments will do it for their citizens somehow. Right? Like There's a way for non-crypto organizations to engage with NFTs that's straightforward in a way that is not as straightforward to... I don't know, build some supply chain app on Ethereum to a manager. You and all your competitors, all those things are difficult. Minting a few NFTs are, it's not difficult. And a lot of things in technology take off when they become easy to use. And so I took these two things together and I said, well, huh, like 
it's consumer consumer style, and there's incentive for existing organizations to be involved. That was bucket one. Bucket two, that's less conceptually important, but I'll flag it. I think it's going to change the distribution of art and art-like things, collectibles, etc., in the same way that eBay is a better way to distribute long-tail physical goods than antique shops in Pennsylvania are. It's an internet moment for these types of goods and perhaps more broadly, all intangibles. And intangibles, I mean, if you think about how Bitcoin, people sometimes measure it versus different forms of money supply. So M1 or M2 or broader money supply, and that could be one or two or five trillion or 10 trillion. Well, intangibles are a multi-decade trillion dollar category, a small category of human goods. And arguably, they're some of the most important human goods. They're the ones that make Nike a multi-decade trillion company and make the United States an interesting place for people to migrate to, right? These are all intangible things, more so than Nike shoes have plastic on them or fabric or what have you. So, okay, that's interesting. And then the third part, and this is what pushed me over the edge, was, you know, in I think the fundamental framework of Web 1, Web 2, Web 3 is correct. Web 1 came out of, well, first the Department of Defense and then academia, and was all oriented around interoperable standards, right? Email is SMTP, it's an interoperable standard. And Gmail is a big centralized provider of email, but if you don't like Gmail or Gmail doesn't like you, you can go to Outlook, and if you don't like them, you can go to ProtonMail, and if you don't like them, you can host your own email server. And that reduces rent-seeking, right? Email is not hugely expensive to use. It encourages innovation, and you don't get into weird social issues, nationwide fights of who's allowed to have an email account. It'd be weird if some tech company had to decide if everyone on planet Earth has been naughty or nice enough to have an email account this week and get banned or unbanned. And that's going to change on who buys the company. It would seem very weird if we did that for email. And Web2, you know, the web protocols of Web2, so short messaging online, effectively became companies. And it was not inevitable, right? Jack Dorsey and Fred Wilson in early Twitter days were publicly thinking out loud if Twitter should be a protocol and not a company. And I've spoken to Fred about this, and he says, if Bitcoin had been a little bit more developed that we had understood Bitcoin better, we would have gone in the direction of protocol, but we didn't have the mental framework on how you could have something that's open, but with a token monetized. And so it became a company, and because it became a company, and it's a very good company, I mean, it provides a very useful service, I haven't put it all day long. We're going to the metaverse, right? What's the metaverse? It's a better visualization. It's just the internet with, first it's going to be 3D, then it's going to be mostly augmented reality with a bit of virtual reality. And today, just like Twitter 10 years ago, is the inflection point on whether it ends up getting captured by one or two or three companies, or do we go in an interoperable direction? And my overall thesis, and I'm doing, boils down to this one sentence, that NFTs can be the interoperable, public, self-sovereign repository for the digital object, the quote-unquote metaverse, which is going to be hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of applications. And anyone who feels queasy about this, I always ask them, like, which company's database do you prefer? Right? Because those are the two options. I mean, in the future, there might be a third option, but today it can be on a blockchain or it can be in a database. That's what we have. So this was me last summer, about a year ago. And I thought I had this insight. And I had been following NFT Twitter. And, you know, people were talking about NFTs and having a bunch of fights about different things. 
And so I had to make a decision. Do I discuss it in my existing entity or a different one? And back then, I decided three things. But then over time, there's probably a couple more. The first, I said, let me go with a new pseudonymous. One for three reasons. One, people are doing this with NFTs, and I should do what people are doing. I want to live that experience. This was maybe six months after G-Money and 4156 had gotten punk ape avatars. And it seemed to be an interesting experience. I said, well, let me live the experience that people are living. It's just, I want to get my my feet wet. The second was, I wanted to see if my ideas were right. I think this is going to come to what you were discussing, Michael. I know a lot of people in crypto world. And if I had started calling them up last July and said, hey, I have this big idea of open metaverse and NFTs, I mean, it might have been good or bad, right? You might have taken me seriously because you know who I am, or you might have been like, okay, yeah, I know who he is, and I have a view on who he is. It might have taken me less seriously. So I'm going to start with zero followers and see what happens. And what was really interesting is the followers started racking up, but all of my pre-existing crypto friends eventually showed up. They eventually started DMing me. They eventually said, let's talk. And for some of them, some of the very close ones over time, I said, by the way, it's me, and all of them more or less had the same reaction you had, Wow, no kidding. That was surprising. Right. And then the third one was some level of physical concerns about physical security. Right. The, right. the NFTs, you might not know if I have a lot or not a lot of cryptocurrency, because maybe it's decentralized exchange, but if you collect publicly and the community tends to collect publicly, you can see how many NFTs I have or the company has or what have you. It's a lot, and I'd rather, you know, people don't show up to my door. I mean, the keys aren't at home, but, you know, people can be crazy and they'd rather defer that, right? So this was the background. I would add, and I think this goes to your point, there was a fourth thing that I realized along the way. On my main account, I might also say, like, look at this cool pizza I made, or here's my view on, I don't know, the U.S. election or something. And I think my views on all those things are generic. You know, I don't think I have any grand insight into U.S. politics and, you know, a lot of the country doesn't have, or how to make a pizza or something. And because 6529 was so focused, I think it helped it, the brand, the message, be cleaner, because it felt very incorrect for me to say, hey, look, I have this cool pizza tonight. This is the thing I want to, I want to drill down into, you know, and maybe Sheila, you could jump in with like some thoughts here, because I think like, this this idea that we you know we can carve out a space like an intellectual space that's different and use that because there's no preconceived expectations about where you're coming from you know it strikes me as an incredibly powerful idea right you know then this is what you know this has come from the interview you know 6529 that you and i had consensus and then the conversation we had later on but like this sort of on the one hand quite liberating thing and then Punk, you used the term brand in there, which is an issue like the individual now being able to sort of construct a brand, place some values around it, limit the realm of conversation that it's associated with, and then put that thing out into the world and engage through that vehicle rather than this one is a fascinating way to think about how this stuff works. I don't know, Sheila, if you have any thoughts and if you have any questions for... Yeah, I'm reminded again of that meme that went around a few months ago. I don't remember when it was, time has no meaning where it had like the pictures of people, right? It had like, here's your Twitter profile picture, your LinkedIn profile picture, you know, your Hinge profile picture, right? And they were all different. And the idea there was that the aspect of your identity you're presenting to the world 
professionally, quote unquote, you know, on something like a LinkedIn is different from what you on a dating platform or what you might present, you know, something else. Um, and I think that all of that is fascinating. The idea that you could within any particular platform, you know, sub-segregate your and pick a fragment of it and say, this is the thing that I want to associate with this particular manifestation of me, you know, on social media or out in the world that's very focused and targeted, uh, I think is a really interesting one because you could imagine Perhaps you have a separate, you know, we don't even know. And maybe you weren't telling us, maybe you have a separate pizza making, you know, avatar, right? Or you're an expert pizza maker and we just don't know that because it's not brought into this world. You could do that. You could have any number of those different avatars and identities depending on the amount of time you wanted to put into any anything, which again, I just think it's a really interesting way of approaching conversation and dialogue as a general matter. And what's been your experience with it, 6529? Like since once you took that out into the world, do you feel like people treat you differently? What's come of it? Oh, absolutely. And I genuinely feel I am two different people. Uh, people's right word, two different identities. Or I have two different identities. Maybe I'm one person with two different identities. It does not seem, as far as I can tell from people around me who know about both of them, it does not seem to cause me any psychological problems. I'm well aware of when I'm one versus the other. And one of them is fairly normal and interacts and still likes crypto and pretty big into crypto and interacts with his environment in a more normal way. And one of them is very focused. And I feel when I log into Twitter or Discord or OM or OpenSea, I feel like I'm going into another economy, society, an early metaverse because there's a lot of pseudo people there. I remember reading Balaji's tweets about a year and a half ago, where he says, oh, in the future, we're going to have decentralized. Uh, we're going to have multiple identities online, pseudo identities. And my exact thought was, I thought about it, and I was like, well, I've been building up my LinkedIn and my Twitter and my CV, and why would I want another identity? But, you know, Balaji tends to be right about stuff, so it's probably something like what the next generation will do people in 10 or 15 or 20 years. Well, now my Twitter feed is probably two-thirds avatars and half of those eponymous and half of them pseudo. And I think of them that way. And right. the people, like we have a team that's working on things. We all know who each other is. And we had a team meeting two hours ago. We refer to each other by our pseudos. Hmm. It's super interesting psychologically. We get into a different like realm, like what you feel as if you're talking about a different part of who they are. And if you were wanting to ask the human being to do something, you'd speak to them differently. Like, there, is there literally a distinction between those two realms when you're talking to them? Yeah. And like, I mean, when I, we had a team meeting three hours ago, and one guy on the team was called Parat. And that's not his real name. I know his real name, I know his real life CV. I was Barat this and Barat that, and he was 6529 this and 6529, and he knows who I am. But mm -hmm. in that space, what makes sense to me is that he's Barat. The other thing that he is has zero relevance to that space, right? I mean, it had some relevance maybe in the beginning of it. I mean, we started working together with some of these people, and meet each other first. Then we met each other in person and said, okay, well, that's great. And, but we interact through our pseudonymous identities and everyone who's fairly deep into this type of model is predictably in this type of model 
right? I actually don't have a great mental model of how a person interacts in the rest of his life, right? I don't have, I mean, I have some guesses, but I don't have a great view of how he in a traditional office or with his family or if you go on vacation with him. I have almost zero mental view on that. But I do have a very clear mental view of how he acts in topics relating to NFTs and decentralization and the open metaverse. And he is consistent and predictable. And so we can collaborate, right? And having now gone through this, and it's inevitable. I don't think this is like some niche thing that's going to apply to 1% of the population. I think this feels like something that's just early, right? We're now in the 0.1% adopters, 1% adopters. And if you think about how general, I mean, I'm someone who previously had close to zero distinction between my personal and professional identity. You know, all my accounts are pretty public. Like the idea that you can have one set of interests at work, you go to physical office and have one set of interests, but do you recall you to know that you are super into whatever some other thing it is, well, I'm not sure they do, right? Why do they need to know that? You could choose to tell them that, but you could also choose to have a different identity. And, you know, this existed a long time ago. I was, and this is common in NFTs and crypto. I had bought and sold a decent number of domain names. And it had a proto-NFT, proto-metaverse feel because there, a lot of transactions happened over the counter, people trusting each other, off basically usernames on bulletin boards. And I had traded fairly big amounts then with people I've never met, right? And I had traded them based on the implicit reputation of their username. Well, the username took us to a certain level. Here, though, you have a more rich visualization. It's more human. And I think it takes us a step forward. Join us for Converge 22, Circle's first annual conference on the blockchain-driven future of money, coming this September to San Francisco. Converge 22 is a gathering for what's next in Web3, featuring demos and developer workshops, plus guest speakers like our very own Money Reimagined co-host Sheila Warren, Ave's Stanley Kulikov, Compound's Robert Leshner, and Solana's Anatoly Yakovenko. Money Reimagined listeners get a special discount with the code COINDESK. Register today at converge.circle.com. Near is a revolutionary yet simple Web3 platform for building decentralized apps. Designed by developers for developers, over 700 projects are now building on Near's fast, secure, and scalable protocol. Whether you're a crypto native launching DeFi apps, NFT marketplaces, and play and earn games, or looking to migrate your project from Web 2, NIR makes it easy to build Web 3 for the masses. NIR offers developers a variety of tools, resources, and support for building apps, empowering communities, and creating a more fair, inclusive, and equitable future. Start your Web 3 developer journey now by visiting NIR at NIR.org. The back of this avatar here is the tulip. It's a wonderful Fidenza. Mm -hmm. And I had bought it last August, and I decided to buy it while I was on vacation. And it was a very expensive purchase. It was 1000 ETH. We had agreed in the price. We thought, look, I'm not able to get to Cold Wallet for a week. 
I said, what are we going to do? And so I had, there had been a guy named Khan who was also an avatar, who was like the world expert on finances, and he had helped broker the transaction. And what we decided was we spun up Agnosis Safe. We put three signs, me, the seller, and Khan, who was a cat avatar. And we made it a two out of three signature. I said, I'm going to send 100 ETH. I pulled from a centralized exchange 100 ETH, and I threw it in the Gnosis. And I said, Khan, I mean, trust you that you will appropriately execute the transaction or not in a week based on, you know, do I deliver the other 900 ETH and so on. And I was thinking about this because I was like, huh, I don't know how much ETH this was then, $2,000, $3,000, something like that. I've just sent $300,000 or $200,000 to a cat and someone who's not even a cat, I even no idea who they are, right? <laughs> and a few of them could decide to just take the money, delete their Twitter account, and practically speaking, I'd have no recourse. I mean, okay. yeah, I could report them to the police somewhere. Like, imagine explaining this to the police that you send two hundred thousand dollars of ether to a cat, you know, sig, you know, multi sig, because we're going to buy a Fidenza. I mean, I got to imagine this is no police department's top priority. Right? They don't even know where to begin. And like, you know, if I say it out loud, if I said it out loud to like my mother or other vacation, they're like, my God, if I tell this to my mother, she's going to have a heart attack on the spot. But I was also perfectly comfortable that Han, who was a repeat player in Fidenzas, was the world's largest holder in Fidenzas, had helped broker a bunch of transactions in Fidenzas. The odds that he would destroy all that for $200,000 were effectively nil. What you're illustrating was the idea that you can engender, like you can have a pseudonymous identity that itself has reputation, brand, et cetera, attached to it, that, that there's something at risk. There's something at stake, if you will, right? Like that individual, whoever they are, cat, avatar person, does not want to destroy the reputation basically, right? Because your recourse to your point would not have necessarily been the police or getting back your money. It would have been trashing that avatar on Twitter potentially, right? Or in your circles, being able to say, this is not a trustworthy individual or don't deal with this person or whatever, whatever it might be. Be. And yes, that person, nothing to stop them from popping up again and sort of vote with another avatar and no one knows who that is either. I kind of want to chat a little bit with you about just what are some of the, the risks or downsides of pseudonymity? You know, so I think a lot about the kind of teenager example, and there's so much evidence, I think, that, that it can be very healthy for teens who are isolated or marginalized in some way. You know, they go online, they find a community it's synonymous or, you know, in, in many cases, maybe eventually they reveal who they are, but they form a community around interests that maybe are not held by people at their school or whether they wind up randomly, you know, growing up, right? On the other hand, you have stories of pseudonymous trolls that are, you know, cyberbullying, like all this stuff really runs rampant and not being able to identify a person in the real world you know, people do feel more freedom to kind of say things they wouldn't necessarily say to somebody that they had to interact with on a regular basis that they don't know. So what about, I just want to get your thoughts on some of that and some of the downsides potentially of this, particularly at a place where an avatar does not have a reputation behind them, does not have anything, you know, to lose, right? Doesn't have anything at stake. It's just kind of a super random string of, I don't know, maybe not bots, but doesn't have that same kind of, of risk in engaging in, in online interaction. 
And maybe just to put some sort of really direct point on this, right? 6529, you probably saw the story that we ran uh, just, you know, I think two weeks ago on the Sybil attack on Sabre of this developer who spun up multiple identities and created the illusion of there being a much bigger development network on that uh, particular protocol, which then boosted the price and, and you know, it turned out to be a major scam that was built around the very problem of multiple, you know, pseudonymous identities. In fact, this Sybil attack is precisely the concept that Bitcoin's proof of work was designed to contain, right? So anyway, just like, what do you say about all the, about the, the, the ideas that Sheila was talking about, trolls, etc. Now, this case seems really stark. How do we put that into this world of serendipity that you're talking about? Okay, so there's many, there are four things there. Let me try and take, they're all a little different. I do think there is, I mean, interactions are things that happen on chain, whatever, you know, with appropriate knowledge of the protocols. It doesn't matter who the person is, right? But if you could, it was a 15-year-old and someone said, hey, meet me here because I'm also 15, and they turn out to be some type of, you know, 40-year-old guy and, you know, would those things be concerning? Sure. And are these things that have always existed? Sure. I mean, LinkedIn has a real name policy, as far as I understand, but it's trivially hackable, right? You can put whatever name you want, you can make whatever email you want, and you can put a picture of whoever you want, right? So none of this short of enforcing only eponymous internet presence, pretending to be someone else online to chase around a teenager, is something we've had with us for decades. It's certainly not anything new with NFTs. So I'd say that's bucket one. Bucket two on trolls. I mean, I'm probably the wrong person to ask because I'm completely indifferent. You see some of these dumb accounts, blah, 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 and a bunch of numbers and zero followers, you know, might come say dumb tweets under my tweets. And I give them exactly as much weight as those people should have, which is none, right? Someone with no credibility, someone with no background. If Barat came to me and said, look, I think you're really wrong on this. That would bother me. I'd want to figure out why he thought that. If someone who has a one-week-old account with a bunch of numbers behind it says, I hate NFTs, you're an idiot. I don't even, I don't even bother blocking it. Like, they just go anywhere in one ear out the other. Who cares? Why, would anyone, why should anyone care about that? Now, I grant you, some people are more sensitive and it can bother them. And... I mean, what I would say is if you are in a normal type of environment, blocking works okay. But if you do come under a coordinated assault of some type, my understanding is that never happened to me, so I can't speak to it. I think, you know, there have been people, often women, I think, who have been effectively chased online with like super aggressive troll assaults that, you know, you just can't block fast enough, right? So, I flag that it's a problem. Again, it's not a new problem. It's not an NFT-based problem. The anti-civil measures of any of the social media companies are effectively worthless, right? This is the whole Elon Musk Twitter fight. There are bots in my feed every day. It's an existing problem. Arguably, it's a problem that over time will get better on chain because I can very easily pretend to be Michael Casey I set up michaelcaseyemail.com. I go register it somewhere. I download your picture from the CoinDesk website. I set up an account. I put a Google Voice uh, phone number. I'd get, ver- I'd get an account set up anywhere. It would take me five minutes. Deep fake video to attach it to it and create a whole, yeah. 
And then I can run around as Michael Casey saying a bunch of dumb things, right? Mm-hmm. What you can't do, though, is provably be Punk 6529, because right. that token, as you said with Bitcoin, is in my wallet, not your wallet. Mm-hmm. And today, we're in a transitional phase, and, you know, there's the hexagon on Twitter, but I'll still say it's transitional. Eventually, you'll have more native integrations. I can sign 6529, and nobody else can. Right? And to me, this is a step change forward, which is you can be pseudo and be predictably who you are and be able to validate that on chain. Right? And so this, I think, is very good for things like impersonation. I have a bunch of bots that impersonate me. You know, if a 6529 says, DM me because you're going to get free ETH or something, right? It's never me. Right? This happens constantly. And the only reason it happens is because Twitter is transitionally between a Web 2 and a Web 3 type system, right? In a Web 3 type system where it fully pulled in which punk and which wallets linked and what have you, they would obviously stand out as fakes. And so I don't want to pay any attention. We need to wrap up, unfortunately, punk. But this is why I feel like this explosion of pseudonymity that you're referring to, like all these people in your feed, because we've now got this unique way to attach some value to it, this provability. The bot problem is with us, as you say, because we still live in a Web2 world, but the opportunity to actually attach some provable feature to a separate identity and then work with that as a reputational element, I think is really powerful. I will say that some of the things like you're talking about feeds into we at Coindesk and the way we think about journalism. And we have a specific policy now, you know, unlike lots of other media organizations that try to out individuals who are hiding hide an alternative identity because it's seen as a way for them to obfuscate their the truth. Uh, that's a classic journalistic approach. You need identity to give skin in the game. We believe that, you know, pseudonymity is, is a right that people should be able to express. And that ultimately what's interesting about this is that you can also have a reputation attached to an avatar like as you do that you want to protect and therefore you do have skin in the game and that that's the basis around which our policy is built at Coindesk. However, we also have this argument that if you're abusing that privilege, which is what the case was in this Sabre case, we turn that around. So I think, and that may be because we're in the midst of this this shifting moment, as you say, from Web 2 to Web 3, maybe everything will be there'll be a whole reputation system built around these provable uh, pseudonymous identities. Look, unfortunately, we have to wrap, and this has been fascinating. I wanted to talk to you about OM and like your views on open platforms and everything else, you know, because clearly you've got lots of great ideas and we have a massive job ahead of us as a society to, to ensure that the metaverse that we're moving into, in fact, isn't controlled by these sort of powerful centralized entities. And I know you've got strong views on that. So maybe we'll have to pick up the conversation some of the time, but unfortunately, we have to wrap. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure, even though, as I said, I, I had this slightly disappointment that I actually know who you are now. But Sheila, you get to enjoy the, the, the <laughs> illusion of not knowing. So it's, it's all good. But thank you very much for your time. And thank you to, to Sheila. Thank you to uh, all of our listeners and viewers. Do come back next week for another edition of Money Reimagined. Bye for now. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guest Punk6529. This episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau, with announcements by Adam B. Levine, and our executive producer is Jared Swartz. 
Our theme music is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.